on this uh, thing, developing our personal Bible study. And uh, boy, I'm telling you what, I'm enjoying this study as we digging into uh, the deeper things, I guess you would say, of the Word of God, digging into these uh, things to help us see and understand the Word of God and how it works together. And our theme verse, of course, is 2 Timothy 2.15. If we didn't have this verse memorized before this study, we will have it memorized by the end, but it's study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so this verse challenges us to understand the word of God. For the last couple of Wednesdays, we've been looking at figures of speech in the Bible, and we'll look at that again tonight and probably for uh, two more Wednesdays, Lord willing, uh, we'll, we'll wrap that study up. I will say that I'm having uh, difficulty, though, because as I study it, I'm, I'm wanting to branch out, but I'm trying hard to just stick with what I told you here, and so just stay with that, so hopefully we won't get uh, too burdened down with looking at figures of speech, but boy, I'm telling you, there's a lot that helps us to uncover things in the Word of God and see them in a different light. Of course, uh, figures of speech is uh, what the purpose of this study is to recognize and understand the figurative statements in the Bible and the purpose of that they serve. And so let's pray and then we'll get on into the lesson. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for these saints. Uh, Lord, that come out faithfully every Wednesday night. Lord, they, they, they get home from work and Lord, I know oftentimes they're probably tired. They have to rush to eat their dinner or maybe they skip their dinner. Uh, Lord, and then they come to your house and Father, I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you, dear Lord, for their desire to learn and know you. I thank you for their desire to serve you and Father, I pray that you will bless each of them this evening. I pray, dear Lord, you bestow upon them a special blessing. Oh, Lord, for their faithfulness to you, their dedication to you, their prioritizing you. Father, I know that when we have done all that we can do, Father, we're unworthy servants. But Father, I pray that you'll bestow a special blessing on this group of people. Oh, Lord, who faithfully come. Lord, I pray that you help me. Lord, as you've given me the responsibility of conveying the Word of God to these people. And Lord, they've, they've put aside themselves to come tonight. So Father, Lord, I pray that you will help me to be able to share something from your Word. Uh, Lord, that'll make it worth their while. Lord, that'll encourage and will strengthen and will help them to grow. Uh, Father, Lord, that it may not just be a ritualistic thing that we do or something that we do out of obligation, but Lord, it'll be a time when we truly are fed and we truly learn of your Word. And Lord, we grow in your Word. I pray, dear Lord, for the children's ministries downstairs. I pray for Pastor Kent as he's working with the teens. I pray for Brother Aaron as he's working with the Young children, Father, I pray that you bless that ministry. I pray, dear Lord, that you will allow us, Lord, through that ministry to get into the homes of families in our community that do not know you as Savior. Lord, through these ministries, oh Lord, we will be able to share the gospel and see people come to a saving knowledge of you, Father, I pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for the privilege of being in your house. Bless now this time of looking into your word. And Father, we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we continue going through this study of understanding figures of speech used in the Bible, uh, up till now we have been looking at figures of speech that probably we were familiar with, probably we had at least heard of that figure of speech or heard that title being given. Uh, maybe we didn't understand exactly what it was, perhaps we did, but they were more familiar of, uh, uh, figures of speech. The ones that we're moving into now are less familiar 
and especially the ones we'll be looking at tonight, uh, deal specifically with figures of speech in the Bible. There is some applications that are used other ways, but mainly the two we will be looking at tonight are used specifically in relation to the Bible. So with that being said, it's a, a, a good chance that these may be new and unfamiliar. So you may ask, Pastor John, why is a study like this important? Why is it that we need to look into these figures of speech? I mean, it's something that we use in our conversation anyway, although we may not know the big word that describes it. It's a common language, so why is it important that we understand these things uh, uh, in regard to the Bible? Well, my answer to that would be that understanding the Bible, understanding the Bible is vital to the doctrines concerning God, the doctrines concerning the mankind, doctrines concerning the way of salvation, doctrines concerning sin, judgment, uh, eternal security, and on and on and on we could go. My understanding of the Bible helps me to understand the doctrines of the Bible, and understanding the doctrines of the Bible enables me to apply them to my life so that it's not just a book full of knowledge that doesn't really do anything for me, but it is something that I can apply, something I can live by, something that works for me. Uh, I, I love to read, and uh, I've always liked reading, even as a child, and, and I have volumes of books on many different subjects. Some of them are books that I actually use. A lot of them are full of information that I've never applied, never actually used it difference in me. And I feel that many churchgoers see the Bible that way. It's interesting, and, and they've read parts of it, but it's never been made applicable. And understanding the doctrines of the Word of God makes the Bible applicable. If we do not have a correct understanding of the Bible, then we don't have a correct understanding of foundational doctrines, and and it also leads into people missing the truth of the Word of God. A young man that I knew uh, uh, when I was still a teenager, I knew this young man and uh, recently was reacquainted with him. When I knew him, he was in church. His dad was faithful to church. He was faithful to church. He was a church-going kid. Now he totally dismisses everything that has to do with God and even even uh, defines himself as pursuing Satan worship and these type of things. What happened? Somewhere along the way, he grasped on the foundational doctrines of the Word of God to the point that he dismissed everything that the Bible taught. And I could give many, many illustrations of people who have walked away from the Word of God because they didn't have a clear understanding of God. Matter of fact... I believe one of the number one reasons that young people leave churches is because they don't have a good grasp on the foundational truths of the Word of God. And then they go into the secular world and people begin to question their faith and because they're not grounded, they walk away from the truth. And so therefore, I think it's important that we understand the Word of God. And we'll talk more about this in a second, but understanding the Word of God has to do with understanding the language that it is written in. Just remember this, though. Whenever you think about the importance of the doctrines of the Word of God, all false doctrines, 
All false doctrines across the board, none are exempt. All false doctrines are the result of misinterpretation of the Word of God. All false doctrines come from that. A couple of examples I could give you on that. Uh, Brigham Young, uh, founder of the Mormon uh, cult, justified his 30-some wives by referring to Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation, having more than one wife. And therefore, he based his whole philosophy on a misinterpretation of Scripture. I mean, it doesn't take long to look at the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar and to see that Hagar was a bad choice and the problems that came into the home because of it. But Brigham Young didn't see any of that. Instead, he twisted and used it to justify his more than 30 wives. In my home state of West Virginia and other rural areas and maybe other places I don't know about, People will take Mark 16, 18. My neighbor, when I lived in Oceana, West Virginia, my neighbor went to one of these churches. And it says in Mark 16, 18, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. The whole basis of these churches is handling snakes, drinking poison, and doing these. This is the whole basis of their religion, and it is all based on a misinterpretation of Mark 16, 18. A whole denomination exists, and people die because they don't have enough faith to resist the bite of the serpent because of a misinterpretation of Scripture. And we could go on and on and on, but all false doctrine is a result of misinterpretation of Scripture. Because we believe the Bible was written in the customary way in which we write, talk, and think, then we need to interpret it according to the customary way in which we write, talk, and think. Therefore, we have figures of speech in the Word of God because that is our customary way of talking and communicating. Therefore, in order to understand the Word of God, we need to understand figures of speech. As we've seen in the last couple of lessons, figures of speech are a common, colorful addition to our communication. And because of that, they are used in Scripture Recognizing uh, figures of speech and properly applying them go a long way in helping us to properly understand the Word of God and properly apply the Word of God. Regarding the importance of figures of speech in the Bible, uh, Mr. W. McNeil Dixon, professor of English literature at the University of Glasgow, uh, in 1937, he said this concerning figures of speech in the Bible. He said this, If I were asked what has been the powerful force in the making of history, I should have answered figurative expression. It is by imagination that men have lived. Imagination rules all our lives. The human mind is not, as philosophers would have you think, a debating hall, but rather a picture gallery. Remove the figurative expressions from the Bible and its living spirit vanishes. The prophets, the poets, the leaders of men are all of them masters of imagery and by imagery they capture the human soul. So it's easy to see how the figures of speech play an important part in the literal interpretation of the Word of God. So far in this study, we've looked at six different figures of speech. You have them there on your worksheet. These include the simile, the metaphor, the allegory, the paradox, the irony, and the personification. In tonight's lesson, uh, we're going to consider two more figures of speech. As I said a moment ago, they're not as common as some of the others, uh, but are readily found in our conversation and throughout the Word of God. The first one which we will look at is number seven on your worksheet. And per Google, 
It is pronounced uh, anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism is how that is pronounced. And that's, uh, I looked it up on Google and listened to it like 20-some times, and so that's my best shot, all right? Uh, I told Brother Harry, I said, we're going to say it once, and then y'all just know that's what I'm talking about after that. Uh, uh, but this is a figure of speech uh, that we find throughout the Word of God. The definition of this figure of speech is when we attribute physical human elements such as hands, eyes, feet, ears, etc., to God. So we describe God as having hands, feet, eyes, ears. This, fig, this is the figure of speech that we're This anthropomorphism comes from two Greek words, anthropos, which means man, and morph, which means form. So in theological uh, terms, this anthropomorphism is making God into the form of a man. Uh, there's a lot of Bible examples. Uh, of this throughout the Word of God. Uh, uh, in Numbers, chapter number 6 and verse number 25, uh, we see that the Bible says that the Lord will make His face to shine on you. And that should be there in your worksheet. That should be your first blank for tonight on the right-hand side of your sheet. In Numbers 6, 25, the Lord will make His face uh, to shine on you. So the Lord is described as having a face as man would have. In Isaiah 23, 11, uh, the Bible says that He stretched out His hand. So this is describing God as having a hand as a man would have. Uh, in Psalm 89 and verse number 10, uh, it says, And scattered enemies uh, with his strong arm. So here we see an illustration given of strength, the strength of the arm of a man uh, representing our God. In Psalm 34 and verse number 15, the Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ear is open to their cry. So we see here that the Lord is described as having physical eyes uh, and He is described as having physical ears. And many, many, many more uh, verses we could look at. This is used all throughout the Word of God. Now, some look at this and they feel that this is teaching that God literally has eyes, face, hands, and feet. But this is not necessarily true. The Bible tells us in John 4 and verse number 24 that God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus said that a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. And so we see here <clears throat> that God is a spirit. He's not flesh and blood. But because we are not spirit, the word of God uses this figure of speech to help us understand God's nature and God's action. The Latin word used to describe this figure of speech. So see here, we're going from English to Greek to Latin. Boy, I'm telling you, I'm some kind of learned professor, aren't I? Don't be deceived. Um, anyway, the Latin word to describe this uh, uh, is the, the English word that we translate as condescension, coming down, condescension. Uh, this is the word the Latins used to describe this figure of speech. And what this indicates uh, is that God, through this figure, condescends to the limitations of man that we might be able to at least partially comprehend the incomprehensible, uh, uh, that we may be able to partially know the unknowable and to fathom the unfathomable. You see, the truth of the matter is that God is so far beyond us and so much more than we are, that there is no way that we in our human minds and our human understanding could ever comprehend God. Therefore, God condescends 
and describes himself with human attributes so that we can partially begin to comprehend our incomprehensible God. And that is the use of this figure of speech. Now I want you to understand that the use of these anthropomorphisms do not limit our God. To say that he has a hand or eyes or ears does not limit him in any way. But rather, it reveals to us the expanse of his greatness. God has to come down to us to give us a partial understanding of who he is. This isn't limiting God. This is showing us just how great of a God we have. Uh, He must take on a limited description of himself. Now, whenever we get into the word of God and we at the descriptions of the, of the God that we serve. I personally am overwhelmed at what I understand about God. I'm just like, what a God we serve. But then when I begin to understand this figure of speech and I realize that the picture the Bible paints to me of God is limited to my human understanding, and therefore what I am seeing, what's blowing me away, what's overwhelming about God is only a partial picture of who my God is. I'm telling you this, as I was doing this study, and I've been looking at this for a few weeks now, I was just like, oh my goodness, what a God we serve. What an enormous, awesome God we serve. The two passages that we illustrate this figure of speech Isaiah 30, verse 27, and Psalm 91, verse number 4. So first let's look at Isaiah 30 and verse number 27. The Bible says here in this passage of Scripture, and we could have chose any number of Scriptures, but these are just the two we went with. Uh, Behold, the name of the Lord cometh from far, burning with his anger, and the burden thereof is heavy. His lips are full of indignation, and his tongue as a devouring fire. So see here in this verse we see that God is described as having lips and a tongue. It says his lips are full of indignation and his tongue as a devouring fire. It also speaks there uh, that the Lord is burning with anger. This You remember this when we get to the next one. You'll, you'll link back to this verse about speaking of God's anger. But right now we're looking at the fact that it's talking about his lips being full of indignation and his tongue as a devouring fire. So to understand this verse and to understand this figure of speech, we need to understand the context. Of course, we do not have time for a full study, uh, but just to give you a glimpse, this verse is part of a prophecy uh, that is spoken concerning the judgment of God that will come upon the army of Sennacherib if he attacks uh, the people of God. And so God is telling uh, the army of Sennacherib what's going to happen if they attack of God. And we see here that there are two things uh, that is said. First, uh, his lips, speaking of God, his lips are full of indignation. This means that God, if the Assyrians attack, God is going to issue a command that they be destroyed. And it's not just going to be a command that they be destroyed, but it is going to be a command that is spoken with indignation. It's going to be complete. There's going to be no escape. By using the the term of his lips, it helps you and I to picture an almighty God speaking this order that Sennacherib's army be destroyed. This does not mean that God has physical lips, but it helps us to understand 
what is taking place here. Uh, uh, we see then it says, and his tongue as a devouring fire. That is, uh, uh, the command that he will issue to destroy the Assyrians uh, will be such, uh, will be destroyed in a raging fire. So he, we see here that God is painting an image of himself, that his lips is giving the command, his tongue is breathing fire. We see here that God is describing a human, to us, an earthly picture uh, that helps us understand that God says, if Sennacherib moves against my people, I'm going to issue an order uh, and orchestrate the destruction of this army. I will take care of it. But because he paints the picture of God having lips and God having a tongue, it puts an image in our mind that helps us remember this passage of Scripture. God simply said, if Sennacherib moves against my people, I will destroy him this in here with his lips of indignation and his tongue of fire. It paints a mental picture in our mind that helps us remember what God has said. Some folks when they memorize and I've never uh, applied myself to this method, everyone that tries it say that it works, uh, but they will build a castle is what they call it. And so for every phrase that they're memorizing they will link it to a picture and then in their mind, these pictures are linked together. And so in order to quote the scripture, they just remember the pictures. Now, I've never applied myself to it, but everyone that does it says you absolutely cannot forget the scripture once you paint a picture to go with it. And so this is what God is doing here. He is painting a mental picture of a God who is full of wrath at the army of the Assyrians for marching against his people. We see that this figure of speech doesn't limit God, but this figure of speech helps us relate to Him, although He's far greater than we are. Now the second verse that I have here is Psalm 91, verse number 4, and with this verse I'm actually sliding in another figure of speech here. We're just going to slip it in right here for you. So, uh, But uh, Psalm 91, 4 says, He shall cover thee with His feathers, and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Now, we're talking about anthropomorphisms, which is applying human attributes, human physical characteristics to God. This verse is not applying human characteristics, but rather animal characteristics. This verse represents God through the descriptions of a bird's wings and feathers. This figure of speech is the same family as what we're looking at tonight, but this figure of speech is known as zoomorphism. That is, when we apply the physical characteristics of an animal to God or even other human beings, zoomorphism. So, uh, see how I slid an extra one in there for you? You can write that off to the side there. Uh, but this applies animal characteristics to God. This is another way in which God gives us a limited but yet humanly understandable description of himself. You see, there are some who present our God as not wanting to be known. All false gods are presented as being mysterious and unable to understand. But our God, although He is so much greater than us that we will never be able to comprehend Him, He gives us a book that is full of illustrations that makes it possible for us to understand who our God is. And so by painting Himself uh, uh, with similarities to an animal, it paints a picture that we can understand. Here in this verse, we see a description being given of the care that God provides for His children. This verse has been a comfort to many people because we understand 
about a mother hen gathering the chicks underneath her wings. We've seen that in the barnyard, and even if we didn't have it in the barnyard, we've seen it in storybooks. We understand this. We know that a mother hen gathers the chicks under her wings, and with her wings and her feathers, she protects those chicks. We've heard the stories of barns burning down and the mother hen being dead, and when they pick the mother hen up, all the little chicks run out, not harmed at all. We understand that. And God says, you want to know who I am? I protect you the same way a chicken protects her chicks. Now, all of a sudden, we get a glimpse of what God is doing for us. The only thing is we also understand, because we understand this is a figure of speech, we understand that while he does protect us in the same way a chicken would protect her chicks, it's far beyond what any chicken can possibly do. God protects his children. And the comparison of these two verses show us that God has neither human nor animal characteristics, but he is a spirit. But he's described to us through these figures of speech that we might be able to understand him and draw closer to him. And so we see here that these two figures of speech give us a picture of God. Now another thing that we could add in right here is that there are some false doctrines, Mormons being one of them, who believes that God actually does have a physical body. And they teach false doctrines surrounding that. We could take some time getting into that. But they base it on the verses in the Bible that says that God has eyes and a face and a hand and feet. And they're like, see, God has a physical body. Well, the way that you uh, argue with them is you just bring them to this passage here in Psalm 91.4 and say, well, the Bible also says that he has feathers and wings. So is he a person or a chicken? Which one is he, you know? And you can stump the Mormons pretty quickly with that. But anyway, we see here that these are figures of speech that help us understand who God is. The second figure of speech we'll look at this evening uh, is in the same family, but it's slightly different. And this is anthropathy, anthropathy. Now, anthropomorphisms and zoomorphisms speak of physical characteristics. Anthropathy speaks of feelings, emotions, and passions. Bear with me as we go through this one because uh, there's a little bit about this and it'll make you kind of draw back and say, huh? But if you bear with me to the end, you will see how this works. Now, the definition of anthropathy as a figure of speech is attributing human feelings, passions, and emotions, such as anger, which we saw in the verse that I told you to remember, such as anger, sorrow, regret, jealousy, pity, etc., to God. Uh, some Bible examples that we could look at. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 6 as we're leading up to the flood and man has become very wicked. The Bible says in Genesis 6 and verse number 6 that God was grieved that he had created man. He was grieved. He felt grief for the creation of man. In Exodus 20 and verse number 5, we find that God refers to himself as a jealous God, a jealous God. In Genesis chapter number 8 and verse number 1, at the end of the flood, once the rain had stopped and Noah was the only, him and his family were the only folks left and they're out there bobbing around on top of the water, the Bible says that God remembered Noah. And we see remembering in Genesis 8.1. In Psalm 7 and verse number 11, the Bible tells us that God is angry with the wicked every day. Day. We see another emotion used to describe God here in Psalm 711. He's angry with the wicked. And then probably of all the emotions and passions that we could talk about that are, that are used to describe God, the one that is most precious to us is God's love in which he gave his only son 
in order to save the world. Of course, John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now let me just say right here, as I said, you might would kind of draw back a little bit and say, but wait, God does love us, right? Uh, God is angry at the wicked, right? And I'm saying that these are human explanations, human feelings, human passions that are being attributed to God that we might understand Him. To say, just use the love of God for example, to say that the love of God is an anthropathy does not take away at all the fact that God loves us. But to say that He loves us is a limited explanation of the affection that God has for His people. God chose the most powerful word that we had. And he said, this is what I feel for you. But I want you to take this word and I want you to understand that the way I apply it to you is greater than anything you will ever experience from any other person in on earth. You will never ever experience the level of love I have for you anywhere else uh, during your lifetime on earth uh, but this is the best word you have to tell you what I feel for you. So to say that love is an anthropathy does not mean that God doesn't love us, but it means that He loves us to an extent that we will never, ever be able to fully comprehend and understand. You know what? There was a gentleman, I think I've mentioned him before in messages, my dad used to witness to. And anytime dad would witness to him, he would say, I've read the Bible through ten times. That was always his argument. That he didn't, dad, there was nothing dad could teach him. He had read the Bible through ten times. You know what I've come to realize? You can read a thousand times and you will never begin to scratch the surface of the love that God has for his people. You will never begin to understand. He is so far beyond us. So whenever we look at these human feelings, passions, and emotions that are being used to uh, explain God, what we need to understand is that this is the farthest that our limited human mind can go, but that God is so much greater than our mind can ever begin to comprehend. The two Bible examples that we have to illustrate this are Genesis 6-6 and Exodus 20, verse number 5. In Genesis 6-6, we mentioned just a moment ago, it says, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. The remorse that God felt because of the wickedness of man is expressed to you and I uh, through this human emotion of grief so that when we read the passage, we can understand God's reason for sending the flood. The second example uh, which we mentioned, jealousy, is Exodus 20, verse number 5. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Here he describes himself as jealous. Again, using a human emotion to describe an indescribable God. You see, some folks look into the Word of God and they don't these are figures of speech. Therefore, they have a very small picture of God. Well, God gets jealous like I get jealous. God's grieved like I'm grieved. 
God has hands, feet, eyes, and ears just like we do, and they have a very small picture of who God is. But whenever we understand that these are figures of speech and that God is a spirit, and God, God indwells everything. He is everywhere at all times. Whenever we picture that in our mind, we picture God being everywhere at all times. I don't know how you picture it, but I normally uh, picture him up on the highest cloud with a set of telescopes and he can just see everybody all at once, you know. I try to put it in a human box. But the truth is, he's not human. He's not limited to a body. He is here with us tonight. He's over in China with pastors and churches over there as well. He's in Stanton. He's in Lexington. He's all around the world. He's everywhere all at one time. We can't limit him by putting him into a physical body. We can't limit him by trying to describe his emotions in words that we understand. We can't even begin to fathom how he works and how he operates. But if we do not understand that these are figures of speech, we can get a wrong image of who God is. But whenever we realize that these are figures of speech that God in His mercy has used, that we might begin to get a grasp of the awesomeness of our God, then we begin to become overwhelmed like, wow, God has taken and exhausted the English language to its fullest capacity in order to give us a very limited picture of who He is. That means if I understood everything in this book 100%, and I promise you when I go to the grave, if I live to be 100 years old, I will not understand to be able to explain everything in this book. Neither will any human being be able to. If I were able to comprehend every word in it to its fullest capacity, I would only have a limited picture of who my God is. When you begin to understand that, it begins to create an overwhelming picture of who this God is that we serve these figures of speech reveal to us the vastness of our God, the picture of how He is far beyond us. He is above us. That uh, when He describes Himself to us through human descriptions, we are receiving an accurate but a limited view of who God is. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, or neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We serve a God that is so far beyond you and I. We serve an awesome God. And I sometimes think that we do not comprehend just how awesome our God really is. But whenever we look at these figures of speech, and boy, now when you get into your word of God and you begin to see these, every time you see one, recognize that God is giving me the best description that I can understand. But it's limited because I'm limited. He's so much more. Whenever you read a verse and it just blows you away on how great God is, remember, he's so much more than that. So much more. So much more. Boy, I'm telling you what, we serve an awesome God. I know that I enjoyed this study and uh, hope that y'all enjoyed it as well. Looking at these figures of speech that describe our God to us. Amen. All right. Just before we close in a season of prayer, I wonder if anybody at all uh, had thought of a re prayer request uh, that they would like to share or add to the list. Anybody at all? Anybody? None at all? 
Well, then, Brother Dave, can I get you to lead us in prayer? And Brother Randy, I'll get you to close this.